This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited to introduce you to Lauren Stefano. Lauren lives in Connecticut where she was born and raised. And when she's not writing thrillers, she's listening to true crime podcasts and crocheting her way to too many blankets. She joins me today to talk about her career and latest novel, How I'll Kill You. Now that's an exciting title. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Lauren. Thanks so much. I'm so excited to be here. Lauren, I'm I'm happy to have you here, a fellow nutmeg stater. Not mm-hmm. that I've ever, I don't think I've ever used that term, nutmeg state, but uh, I find it appropriate this morning. Um, tell me, where does your story as an author begin? Oh my gosh. So probably 2008, I had just graduated from Albertus here in Connecticut, and I knew that I wanted to write a book, did not know what that looked like. And I was really lucky to connect with my amazing agent. And over the years, she's definitely been the person to tell me, I don't think this is your style. Let's try something different. You know, she's not afraid to say no to me. And shortly after we signed around 2009, early 2010, I was really fortunate. And I'm still reeling from the fact that I sold my first YA novel. Um, And I, I foolishly, sillily thought that, oh, I'm published now. So it's, this is my career. This is it. It'll be all cake from here, which has, has definitely not been the case. (laughs) Um, It has its ups and downs, I think like, like any other career path, but I've, I've known since the beginning that I love true crime. I love following these stories. I love thrillers that one day I wanted to write one. And it took so from 2010 to recently, 2020, about to finally come up with the idea. And I feel like it's a a second start. It's a brand new trajectory entirely. Well, definitely want to dig into this a little bit more. But I have to ask, what were you studying at Albertus Magnus? Creative writing. <laughs> OK, so, it, so this is pretty, pretty close to what you what you set out to do, um, you know, yeah. when you were an undergraduate. The major itself was very humbling because when I was growing up and I was in school, I was always the creative writer of the class. Nobody, nobody I knew really, none of my friend group liked writing. They found it kind of a chore. And then I went to college thinking, well, that's my identity. I'll be the writer of the group. But no, I'm surrounded by really talented, budding writers and learning that there's actually so much more to learn besides just wanting to do it. Yeah, I you know, interestingly, I I never thought I'd be a writer or write anything when I was growing up. So I have a twin brother. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we, there was always some kind of, you know, four sibling rivalry on us. Like, I don't think it was created by us. It was, but it was created by like our teachers, our parents. And he was always the one that was really good at English. Okay. And I was always the one, and I was always told I was very good at math and I did well in math. I didn't necessarily have a passion for numbers, <laughs> but, um, he was always the, the sort of quote unquote writer. And then I got to college. I went to UConn. And we had to take, I think, over the course of our four years, at least three W courses, which are writing courses. And I found I loved these courses. I loved being mm. able to. And even, you know, I was taking like sociology, but it was a W course. So there was a lot of writing. Um, and and I kind of I kind of fell in love with it. You mentioned something earlier, though, that, you know, you you were able to connect with an agent uh, pretty early on. How did you find your agent? Oh, after a hundred, hundred fifty, hundred so rejections, <laughs> I <laughs> I had written an idea. So I was, you know, when I graduated college, I was just going through a pretty dark period. Um, I had just lost my father, and so I think I was processing that through writing. So everything I was writing was looking back like really sentimental and weepy, which I I wouldn't have thought at the time. I thought I was being, I don't know, I thought I was coping really well, but <laughs> looking back, I wasn't. And I had written a manuscript. And my agent who would become my agent, she said, I don't think this is the one, but I I do think you have a voice and a talent that I would like to work with. So when you have something else, come, come see me. And I thought, well, after 150 plus rejections, and I I hear about authors, famous authors getting 12, 15 rejections. And I think that doesn't seem, that seems light now. Um, I thought, well, this is the only one who has expressed any kind of interest. So I'm gonna keep going i'm gonna i'm gonna try to send her something else yeah and i think the lesson here for aspiring writers of, of whom i have a lot who listen to the show is you know it's gonna take sometimes a hundred rejections to to get to a yes or even close to a yes mm-hmm. um yeah i think anything that's not a form letter rejection where <laughs> you know is, yeah. is i would characterize as close to a yes there's a lot of form letters i this is back in 2008, which is so, it's so different than the publishing landscape today. And this is when you still did invest in a stamp and then get a, you wait and you get a letter in the mail and it's a no, right? Which is somehow it hits different than an email. And so at first my friends told me, we'll save those letters. It'll be fun. And now when it got to the point I could paper a wall with them, it wasn't entertaining to do that anymore. Right. Right. So it sounds like you went through a genre shift from your young adult days to what you're writing now. And and you mentioned that it kind of took 10 or so years to to get into a thriller. What's that like sort of pivoting from one genre into the other? And what are some big lessons you learned there? It's like starting over. It really is like starting from zero, because when you enter a completely different age group, you're looking at completely different imprints at the publisher. So even if you're submitting to publishers that have worked with you in the past, it's a different editorial team. And every market has its own letter, sort of own level of competitiveness. So with young adult at the time in 2010, that was, we were coming off of Twilight and the Hunger Games. And so publishers were really looking for that kind of trilogy appeal, right? And we got that. And then when it comes now to thriller, something I've always been interested in is female serial killers. And I just happened to strike at a time when I think that is pretty popular in the thriller market, but it took a long time to get there. Because in Thriller, there's, you've got the cop drama, right? You've got the sort of small town. You've got the really poetic Gone Girl style. There's all different types. And I was trying a bit of everything. 
And my agent even said to me at one point, you can't write a cop drama. I know what you're trying to do. The authors who do this, they go on ride-alongs. They do these types of things. You don't have the voice for it. Your voice is suited for something else. So a lot of it was just being told no by my agent <laughs> um, and, and being grateful that I had her there to, to try to get me on the right path. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like having an agent, you know, is, is not just somebody who gets you a deal, but somebody who you can collaborate with and you can trust and who knows your voice, maybe even better than you know it. I would say, yeah, I, I would say she knows my voice better than me because I'm, there are times I'm positive I'm pulling off what I'm trying to pull off. And somebody over here, like my agent who's read 8,000 books in the genre will say, no, <laughs> you, if you can't compete here, you might not want to try it. You might not be happy with what you get. Right. And and I guess one lesson I would take away from that is, hey, trust, trust these people, you know, trust your agent to have your best interest at heart because they've they've done it. You mentioned it. She's read 8000 books or so. I don't know if that's hyperbole or not, but, you know, she's read. Probably I, not. I, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's an understatement. But, you know, but in other words, not to take offense at that sort of, you know, critical input yeah. and and really embrace it, because what she's doing is kind of handing you a gift, isn't she? Yeah. And you have to, it's very hard to set ego aside. Um, but it's, it's important, I think, to say, what do I want? What's my goal here? Is my goal to just write a book that I personally enjoy? Because nobody's stopping me from doing that. I can, I can do that. And there's no harm in self-publishing. But if your goal is, I really want to write a book that's on shelves that can get me readers that can really launch a career, I have to listen to the people in this industry. And that doesn't mean you get a rule book of instructions. It just means, okay, I see what you're trying to do. Here's how to do that. Let's lean into this. Let's take away from this. Yeah. I mean, I know it was your, your sort of your, your long-term goal to write a thriller and kind of mm -hmm. starting off in YA, it is it is quite different. Yeah. Did, were you nervous at all in in making that pivot and saying, oh my gosh, you know, my readers know me for something and now I'm doing something else. And and how did you how did you sort of approach, you know, that um, that territory? So the interesting thing is um, all of my friends in my career are in YA. Um, that's just been where I, where I've been. And so when I was showing this to friends, I was showing it to YA authors and a, a very good friend of mine, she read the first chapter when I wrote it and I did not know what to make of it. And the first chapter that's in the published edition is, is pretty similar to the first chapter I sat down and wrote with minor details changed. And she said, Lauren, she said, I'm going to tell you something you might not like. And I was thinking, okay, here it goes. Here's the feedback. She goes, don't screw this up. She goes, this is it. This, you finally got it. <laughs> After years of, of sending material and, and writing first 30,000 words, first 10 pages, she's like, this, this is it. This is the one. Um, and so that gave me, I think, the confidence to to keep trying, because even though YA, different market, different publishers, very different readership, the story beats are the same. Um, yeah. And I think I, I still bring a bit of YA because I'm, I'm used to writing very pacey things where something is happening kind of every 10 pages. So I think I maybe there's a little bit of YA spirit in this. <laughs> Yeah, I think don't screw it up is is kind of great advice because it's 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 it puts a little wind in your sails because it, inherent in that statement is, hey, there's something really good here. You know, don't screw it up. Yeah. And that's that's affection in, in publishing. So for those who are trying to get into publishing, if you hear things like that, it's somebody who cares about you, who really wants you to make it. So if you're 
if you're hearing a lot of this isn't very good, let's try again. Lean, just give it a shot. Lean into it. Yeah. So having having this supportive network around you is is very important. And it is very important for authors to have that sort of support system around them. Mm-hmm. For any sure. any words of advice for someone who's kind of up and coming and in how to like build a support system around them like that? So first thing I would say, and I would say this to any author, no matter what you're writing, um, don't be afraid to get weird with it. Because I had an idea for identical triplet serial killers. And I feel like if I pitched that to my agent or anybody else, they might have said, that's a little bit campy. That's a little bit much. <laughs> um, so the first thing I would say is understand what you want and, and lean into that. Don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to fail. And then I, I would say really surround yourself with people that you also want to uplift. So you want people to read your material, be willing to read some of their material and, and see if you have books in common, favorite authors, favorite styles. And, you know, it just understand it's, it's a lot of up and down. There's a lot of really tough, really dark days. This idea of surrounding yourself with people you want to uplift, um, I think is worth exploring just a little bit more than I promised we're going to talk about the book. Oh, sure. Um, sure. But I, I just love this notion because, you know, I, I've I've heard it in, in other circles, um, like in recovery circles, for example, you know, yeah. giving the gift um, back that that you, so you can keep receiving it kind of thing. For sure. Yeah. Um, so to just tell, unpack that a little bit more, the surrounding yourself with people that you want to uplift. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my, my support system in publishing, some of them are number one bestsellers who were there before I got here. And a lot of them have been on the ups and downs with me and are still trying to make it. A lot of them are unpublished. And it's a lot of when I, when something really good happens to me, these are people who I can text first, who I can, who I can call. And I want to know how they're doing. I want to read what they're working on. And I give them the same, what I think a good a good thing to do when you have friends who are trying to write with you is to say, do you want support right now? Or do you want hard feedback? Because they might be having a day where that's going to, that's going to crush them. And they just want to hear, keep going. You're doing a good job. And other days they might say, all right, um, this isn't working. And I just need to know, I need to know what is going on here. Yeah. So be mindful, be mindful that everybody's on an up and down. Right. And you, you tap into yourself, too, because you, you put your, easily put yourself in that position. You know, there are some mm-hmm. days where you need to hear encouragement and some days where you need to hear you know, something a little bit more critical. Which is something I learned from my support circle is that they would say to me, are you looking for some compassion today or are you really looking to to get it done and roll up your sleeves? And knowing I had that option, I started to extend that to others. Yeah. Well, uh, let's uh, move into uh, your latest book. What can you tell us about How I'll Kill You? So it is about an aspiring serial killer. <laughs> As I said. As- aspiring serial killer. Aspiring serial killer. So <laughs> it's it's about a lot of things, but it, it's really about these three triplets. And they grew up in the foster system. And they when they were babies, it was kind of a a news anomaly. Wow. Abandoned identical triplets. Everyone was kind of donating to them. They were on the talk show circuit. And then as they got older, they became just wards of the state and they went off in three separate directions and they had a very powerless upbringing. And the youngest protagonist, she goes by the alias Sissy, which is not her real name, (laughs) Um, but she was put into sort of a nuclear family situation. And she found herself happy and comfortable there, but 
she would look over at her sisters who were being bounced into group homes and sort of abusive situations. And she felt guilt that she couldn't give them what she had. And so what she would do is she fell into this pattern of sabotaging herself to try to commiserate with them and try to be with them. And now they're adults, they're in their 20s, and her two sisters, um, as a way of maintaining some control over their lives, they've come up with this pact that they will have partners, romantic partners, fall madly in love with them. And then before their hearts can be broken or before anybody can take any agency from them again, they kill them. And Sissy being the sort of doting and loyal one of the group, she has become an expert, sort of like Dexter, of cleaning up their messes and and making sure they never get caught, making sure they don't get too sloppy and taking care of them. And after six years of this, she she comes to the conclusion with her sisters, okay, it's my turn. It's my turn to find somebody to kill. And so they come to this small town and everything is very deliberate. They pick a town where there's not really a lot of security cameras. People keep their doors unlocked, similar to where I live. <laughs> and and she meets this young widower named Edison. And she thinks he's perfect. He's He's the one. And then as she spends time with him alone, she starts to sort of fantasize about having just a really simple, quiet life with him, something she never really had growing up. And she starts falling in love with him and and feeling conflicted because her sisters will not allow this to fly. And at the end of the story, she's going to have to betray somebody and it's, there's no way it's going to end well. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued uh, for a number <laughs> of reasons. Number one, I'm the father of triplets. Hmm. Now, now they are not identical. Uh, we have two girls and a boy to okay. my knowledge. Um, the only one has had a serious uh, romantic love interest, and he's still living, even though that they parted ways a couple That's years good. ago. Um, although I haven't seen him in person in quite some time, so you never know. I mean, you mm-hmm. never. By the way, I love the black cat in the background as we're talking about this. This that is, is I mean, that is what what what's the cat's name? <laughs> Momo. Momo. Well, Momo, you made this is perfect timing because it's very ominous. We're, we're oh, now now you're <laughs> gone out of frame. <laughs> nice to meet you, Momo. She's, she's about to turn 17 actually oh my goodness that's she's a been with uh, me the whole time <laughs> there you go you've seen the up momo seen the ups uh the ups and downs and ups again of your of your career sure has um but so i mean so i'm fascinated just by this notion of of these triplets who are um sort of hopefully not like my own but um it seems like you know these other two sisters and it makes sense i mean have a real strong fear of abandonment and that's kind of what's fueling their you know, hey, let's 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 abandon someone else before, you know, they have the opportunity to hurt us or abandon us or something like that. So did, did, is that what you're tapping into this like intense fear of abandonment? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, there's there's a lot of moments throughout the story where Sissy, it, she's the, the sole narrator where she thinks about. I'm in for a penny and for a pound with them, right? They they would do anything for me. They've always been there for me. I don't want to go down this path, but if I don't, I'll lose them. So yeah. it's it's really hard. And it's even though they're adults, they're in their 20s, it still is sort of a coming of age because she's been so stunted by her upbringing and, and trying to please them and not understanding maybe fully that they, even though they've kind of come in and out of each other's lives they had very different upbringings they were in different homes parts of different family units and that's really shaped who they've become right so sissy's i mean is am i right in feeling that sissy's kind of the outsider of of these three a little bit yeah they would say you know she's 
the soft one, but at the same time, here she is knowing how to expertly dismember a body and, and get rid of the evidence, right? She's ruthless and she's cunning, but at the same time, she's in a lot of ways, a very um, average person. Indeed. Indeed. Well, very interesting. Well, I know we can't really talk too much more about it because uh, we don't want to give anything away. Give it all so. away. <laughs> no. So that's uh, that is uh, how I'll kill you. Now I'm curious. Um, Lauren, I, one way I like to get to know my my guests on Uncorking a Story is by talking a little bit of pop culture. Are you up for that? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. So I'm curious when you were growing up, Lauren, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Oh, my gosh. I really loved Are You Afraid of the Dark, which probably comes to nobody's surprise. <laughs> and it was to the point where it would scare me senseless, but I couldn't help it. And my where my house was, the the family room was kind of downstairs and the kitchen was upstairs. And every Saturday, my mom would be up in the kitchen just tinkering and she would hear that creepy, you know, that's that music for Are You Afraid of the Dark and that little giggle in the if you've ever heard the opening intro. And she would say, no, no you're not coming into our room tonight. You're not going to do this to us. <laughs> but I was like, I have to, I have to watch the scary show. What do you think it was about scary, scary shows that you like so much? I don't know. It's kind of like, why do people ride roller coasters? It's just this adrenaline rush. <laughs> it's just, it's almost, I can't imagine these scenarios unfolding and I would never want to be in these scenarios, but what happens when you're trapped inside a dollhouse and you're slowly becoming a doll? What happens when you're caught in a pinball machine, right? All these sort of odd scenarios. I just, I have to know how it ends. Yeah. Uh, anything else come to mind as things that you were watching when you were a bit younger? Oh my gosh. I did a lot of reading. I don't know if that comes to anybody's surprise, but <laughs> one of my, I think one of my favorite books that it probably in a roundabout way did contribute is The Great Gilly Hopkins, which was about a foster child. And it was, I, I was assigned in fifth grade to read one chapter and I read the whole book in one night. My parents were, they brought me dinner in, in my room. They were like, well, you're reading. We don't want to stop you. So go ahead and read your book. But it was, it really showed me, it was a really, it was a lighthearted story for the most part. It was age appropriate for, you know, somebody in the fourth or fifth grade, but it really did show what being in the foster system could do to a person and how they just really want a shot. They just want to be in a family. They just want to be happy. And I think in a lot of ways that shaped a lot of my writing and in my perspective on kind of people. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like, you know, you, you may have been able to tap into that a little bit for this for this latest novel. Mm -hmm. um, anything you like to watch now? I know it's so funny. I ask questions about like TV and movies, and I know I'm talking to authors and I should be asking about books, but I'm always curious about what people are watching. It's really podcasts for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's probably because I um I do like a lot of subtitled films, <laughs> but it's, I do a lot of knitting and crocheting when I'm, you know, sitting and watching things. And so it's hard with subtitles. So a lot of true crime podcasts. Interesting. Did you, um, did you get into only murders in the building uh, on Hulu or I haven't seen it? No, I, I keep, it keeps getting recommended to me though. Well, for anyone who loves a good true crime podcast, uh, only murders in the building, you know, in a visual medium definitely pays it off with a ton of humor. It's, it's great. There's a lot of inside, you know, quote unquote, inside baseball mm -hmm. um, stuff. So inside true pot, true crime podcast stuff in there. It's uh, good. Yeah, it is delightful to to watch. Um, what about music? What did you like listening to growing up? Oh, my gosh. Hip hop. For some reason, just so much anything that got my brain jogging. 
hip hop, pop music. I really liked Metallica also, just kind of a little bit of everything. And I, I grew up in the era of LimeWire and Napster. I might be dating myself. No, no, not at all. But friends were just, we were all sending each other music we wouldn't have otherwise heard. So it was a lot of just, it was a very eclectic because the radio at the time, and this is in the kind of late nineties, just so much R&B, so much hip hop, so much pop music. And then I'd go online and I loved all that. Right. Um, And then I'd go online and somebody would be sending me Tori Amos, Metallica, um, a lot of deep cuts. Right. So I, I guess the short answer is everything. Yeah, absolutely everything, but I love lyrics. So I love things where I can kind of try to pick out the story. Yeah, and certainly you can do that with uh, with hip hop. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm smiling because, you know, you mentioned Metallica and Napster, like in the same in the same five minutes. And uh, they were not necessarily friendly towards each other. That's for no, sure. they weren't. Ironically. Yeah. But, th- but ironically, that's how I heard of Metallica back yeah. when that was still the Internet was a very different place yeah. <laughs> in the beginning. Um, going back to, to writing for a minute, any sort of lessons you've learned you felt like you've learned the hard way going through sort of the the publishing process um so i would say don't get in your head too much um because i i fell into the trap of i would write a whole book and then i would send it to my agent and then she would say i don't think this is very good and so I went to the other extreme where I would write just a few pages and say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And it's too early for anybody to really give you an informed opinion on whether you should keep going. So I think it's, you have to, A, be willing to fail. Just if you believe in your idea, write it and then see where it goes. And then B, don't get in your head too, too much. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you've been making your living as a writer, um, you know, primarily since, or you've been working steadily as a writer, primarily since graduating. Mm-hmm. Um, any other career? What's that? <laughs> Somewhat steadily. Somewhat steadily. Well, any other careers you'd, you'd want to, you know, try your hat at if you could? Anything else? I you'd do. Like to do? Yeah. So in during the pandemic, I actually did. Can I say that word? Pandemic. Will we yes, know? you can. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you to get demonetized. <laughs> I. We, I did fall into a lot of writing, coaching, editing, um, a little bit of ghostwriting here and there. And I, I think anything to do with helping authors or being an author is just where my passion lies. But I, I love stories. And so I love it when people bring me their stories and they say, I have this idea, but I don't know how to get to it. And we always figure it out. Yeah, that's uh, again, kind of giving that gift back, it sounds like. I think it's it's their own gift. I think it's just giving people a little bit of empowerment because I know what it's like when nobody's ever really told you this is good or you can make it. And so working with somebody and helping them get to that place is always really fun. Yeah. Well, uh, if you could go back in time and you know, maybe it's, you know, think about the the younger Lauren who's watching, you know, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can go back in time and whisper some words of advice into her ear, what would you tell your younger self? Stay weird. Um, I was I spent so much of that time of my life trying to suppress that I was kind of nerdy, kind of bookish. I, I know that now we live in a wonderful world where being a little bit of an outcast is is more encouraged, but back then it definitely was not. <laughs> and so I I really did try way too hard to conform and to kind of hide my creativity and not show anybody what I was working on. And I think I I probably missed out on some good friendships with other creative people. And I, you know, was trying so hard to just be something I wasn't. 
So I would say it'll it'll all work out. You'll get there. Just stick to what you're doing. Stick to what you're doing and, and stay authentic to yourself. Yeah, which is hard, which is very hard. Yeah, that's at any stage in life, but yeah. <laughs> well, especially like when you're going through like the the shittiness that can be you know, grammar school, middle school, high school. Um, mm. where if you are not sort of in the the sort of middle of the bell curve of distribution, if you will, there's my nerdiness coming through. Um, you know, if you're in the tails somewhat, you know, you are considered you can be considered a little bit of an outcast. And and yeah. it sounds like, hey, lean into that, you know, embrace yeah. that. Let it let it be. Let it be. Love it. Love it. I think we just got the title for this. Let it be. Um, well, Lauren, how can people get in touch with you if people want to say, if they're thinking to themselves, hey, she sounds really interesting. I'd like to, to reach out to Lauren Stefano. How can they do that? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram only right now. It's at Lauren Stefano author. All right. Lauren Stefano author. And where can people purchase How I'll Kill You? Anywhere books are sold. There we go. Anywhere books. If you are want sold. a signed copy, there is a local indie RJ Julia in Madison, Connecticut, and they will ship anywhere. Oh, I love Madison, Connecticut. Such a mm-hmm. such a pretty town. Such a pretty town. Well, Lauren, thank you for stopping by Uncorking Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.